Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Islam for Christians, episode 87, Islamic History, circa 622 and 623, The Raiders. Things went pretty well for Muhammad in the early months after the Hijra. The Muslims were uniting, and the Arabs were converting, and slowly but surely, the first mosque of the Muslim community was being built. And after about seven months, it was actually completed, and it doubled as a home for Muhammad and his family, a family which was getting larger, because now he would be officially taking on his second wife, Aisha, Abu Bakr's daughter. Now, this particular moment in Islamic history is extremely important. Very, very important. <laughs> um, and I don't just mean because the Islamic calendar starts in 622. This is actually more than that. Because this time leads to a huge change in Muhammad's life. This is the time when the mystic man from Mecca becomes almost unrecognizable in many respects. You know, he's still Muhammad, but he's definitely not the same person that he was in Mecca. Much more so than the actual Hijra, the, the pilgrimage to Medina, this period, by that I mean the beginning of the year 623, give or take a few months, this in my opinion, is the real watershed moment in Muhammad's religious life. So 623, the year 623, this is where we see Muhammad 3.0, someone whose life bears little resemblance to Muhammad 2.0. Now, Muhammad 2.0 was that person between 610 and 622 as the prophet in Mecca. Muhammad 1.0 would be his first 40 years. So here is where we have Muhammad 3.0, the third and final version of Muhammad. And this is the Muhammad who sounds far less sympathetic to modern ears. Uh, you'll see this as we go on. Case in point, Muhammad at this very moment in time is consummating his marriage to a girl as young as nine years old. And he was officially a polygamist. Now, as I like to point out, None of these things were scandalous or criminal at the time. It's only by modern standards. And keep that in mind. If you want to know more about Aisha, I did an entire episode about it. You can refer to that. And for modern people in the West, and by this I mean non-Muslims. This doesn't apply to Muslims. This is the time when the level of cynicism regarding Muhammad, when thinking about Muhammad, this level of cynicism, it tends to go way, way, way up, be it his political moves or the trustworthiness of his revelations, because there are some revelations that will seem wildly, wildly convenient. And the Quran starts to add, obey the prophet to the command to obey God. Now, at this point, Muhammad's house becomes the center of Medinan religious and political life. This is the moment when the religious Muhammad starts to blend and become indistinguishable from the political Muhammad. This is when they really, really mix together. And the political Muhammad is far more open to criticism and second-guessing. Because now, 
he's not in the spiritual world only. Um, he is down in the dirt with the world, in, in the dirty world of, of politics and war and law and, and commerce and whatever. You know, he's where all of us are. He's in the muck. Um, a pure mystic, which is what Muhammad once was, will always look much less pure when he's trying to actually run a community in a rough area or any area, really. The world is messy. And when you play in dirt, you get dirty. For those who are not Muslims, one way to think about this would be kind of like the difference between Jesus and the church, which came afterward. If Muhammad 2.0 was more like Jesus and his disciples, were just proclaiming a message that is in many ways above the world, focused on a spiritual message. Muhammad 3.0, which starts here, Muhammad 3.0 was more like the Christian church that followed Jesus. This is the Acts of the Apostles, down in the dirt of the world, trying to carve out rules for a community. Of course, this was not easy for the early Christians, even with the Holy Spirit. At times, it got very, very ugly and very human. And even more so after Constantine turned the church into a political force. And I think that's a very good comparison for Muhammad at this time, would be the person of Constantine. Constantine received a rather convenient message from the Christian God. And at times, he did seem a little more interested in conquest than in religion. And that same criticism is often leveled at Muhammad. Of course, is that fair? That's really in the eyes of the beholder. It simply depends on what you actually think was in his heart. And that, obviously, is unknowable. You can't read his mind, you can't read his heart, particularly from almost 1,500 years in the future. Well, if Muslim, if you do, you know, that's knowable. But, you know, if you're not, it's a little more ambiguous. Again, for Muslims, that's easy because you're probably a Muslim because you trust Muhammad's heart. If you completely entrust Muhammad's heart, being a Muslim makes a whole lot of sense. But if you're not, there are many different motives that can be applied to the actions of the next 10 years. Now, I tend to give Muhammad the benefit of the doubt for the most part just based on his previous actions and his life. It's possible Muhammad found the temptations of power just too much to bear, and it eroded his character. Or it's also possible that he was still the same person, just in a different setting. And much of our modern cynicism toward him isn't really warranted. Often in history, the truth is almost always somewhere in the middle. However. We're also talking about religion here. So that's a much, much higher standard, a, a different standard. So, are these new kinds of revelations different? Is it different in this new era? Now, it's very rare to find a Muslim, let alone one with any authority or respect in the Islamic community, who believes that the revelations before 622 were somehow better or more trustworthy. It's pretty standard Muslim belief. It, it's all the same. 
Although I should tell you, I have run into one Muslim who thought this. On a quick story, back in the seminary, I, I met a Muslim scholar who was studying Arabic and Hebrew to advance his argument that only the Meccan surahs, the ones before the Hijra, only those were actually from God. The ones after that, he contended, basically came from Muhammad and should not be considered holy. How interesting is that? And I mean, insanely blasphemous uh, from a certain point of view. There's a lot of countries where that would get you killed. It's wildly rebellious. Uh, it's very American, actually, in a lot of ways. Can you imagine how he's seen in his mosque? And, you know, I always wonder where he went with all that. The point is, Muslim or not, these revelations are different, and the setting is different, and the person is arguably different. And I just want to warn people about the sea change in what Muhammad's life is going to be from here on out compared to what has been before. And you may not like everything you hear, especially as modern people. And this is when that really starts. I mentioned Aisha, but there's also another case in point that gives this episode its title, The Raiders. And what I'm referring to there is the Arabic tradition of raiding caravans. Now, kind of like the ancient Nordics and really any people who lived far from any great cities or civilizations, this was just seen as normal. It was almost a profession among many of the Bedouin. They etched out a living in the remotest parts of the desert. Now, the Muslims weren't exactly made up of Bedouins. Is it Bedouin or Bedouins? Whatever the plural is, Bedouins. But they certainly had some motivation to take up this practice. Remember, this is the new Islam. These are Muslims trying to forge a community and make a living and deal with all the practical, unsexy, obnoxious realities of earthly life. And that includes everyone has to make a living. You need money. Your people need to eat, and they need to feed their families. Now, this wasn't going to be much of a problem for the helpers. Now, remember, the helpers, those are the people who had always lived in Medina. But many of the immigrants, those are the ones from Mecca, after they made this trip, they were in dire straits financially. Now, hopefully you remember back when Muhammad left Ali behind to pay his debts in Mecca and to settle his affairs. Well, few Muslims would be seeing such actions from their Meccan counterparts. You know, very few Meccans, I don't know any, would actually return that favor. Muslims who left Mecca basically had to forfeit their property and everything they left behind. There were still some Muslims. Um, Uthman was a great example of this. Uh, he would be the third caliph. Uthman managed to get a great deal of his wealth from Mecca to Medina. And the richer Muslims did their best to prop up the community. But not everyone could adjust to the new situation. In a previous episode, I compared the Meccans to New Yorkers suddenly transferred to rural Kansas. Now, on the surface, they were basically useless people in this new community. 
they had no marketable skills in this world. There was little commerce in Medina. Now, some, like Uthman, they saw this as a lucrative opportunity and really, really were able to take advantage of it. Others, though, you know, if they weren't as highly skilled as someone like Uthman or just didn't know much about commerce, you know, how many of these people could even read or do math or do any of that? What exactly were they going to do? Now, given Medina's geographic position and their beef with the Quraysh of Mecca, it didn't really take a genius to see what the solution to this could be. Now, to modern eyes, it might be ethically dubious, possibly, but you have to admit this is very easy to justify what they do because you have these caravans coming to the west of Medina, Quraysh caravans. They're led by and for the benefit of the people who, as they saw it, forced them from their homes and plundered their wealth. So if we need money, why not get it from those people? Actually, some of the money they have is probably ours anyway. This is a way to make this right and to weaken the enemies of Islam at the same time. There's money on our doorstep, so why not just ride out and take it? And the Muslims did have an advantage here because they were probably the only ones, at least among major powers or major groups, who were actually hunting these caravans, at least among civilized people, <laughs> to, to use an imperfect word. Um, you know, small bands of Bedouin don't exactly count. But the Quraysh were usually, for the most part, protected as guardians of the holy city. They just weren't used to dealing with mass piracy. And the things that protected the Quraysh, normally, from you know this large group of Arab pagans, well, that's not going to protect them from the Muslims. Because the Muslims did not care about the gods who would supposedly destroy them if they messed with the Quraysh. Between the Jews of Medina and the increasing share of Muslims, this city, Yathrib or Medina, it was a hotbed of subversive religion, of monotheistic religion, as far as the wider um, Arab Peninsula was concerned. Now, on one hand, this was a disadvantage, you're religiously different, but on the other hand, it's an advantage, because this gave them the unique power to do whatever they want with the Quraysh. And on this topic, um, Abu Sufyan, the, the Quraysh leader, the, uh, the Meccan leader, he was right. He saw this coming. You may remember Abu Sufyan as a powerful figure from earlier episodes. And he's not stupid. Uh, he was a smart guy. and he, he saw what this would represent. And ultimately, he was right. The Meccan elites were right. They saw this coming. The Muslims were not just a threat to the pilgrimage um, of, of the Kaaba, of all these people coming to the regular pilgrimage at the Kaaba or irregular whenever they want to come to the Kaaba. They were actually a threat to the entire social order that the Quraysh benefited from. Because without Arab paganism as it was, the Quraysh would be just like any other tribe. And honestly, they could never handle that. And they knew it.
they were just they were too soft. Mecca was too decadent. They could not compete on an even playing field with the rest of the Arabs. So the target for the Muslims, it was just so tempting. And the pressure on Muhammad to allow his people to attack the caravans was really mounting at this time. Because these caravans were just sitting ducks by ancient standards. If you had any kind of decent scouting, this is a very advantageous military situation. Even if the caravan hugged the Red Sea, any caravan would be within 80 miles of Medina. That's not that long of a ride. While on the other hand, Mecca was twice as far away, which gave the Muslims a massive home field advantage. So at this point, they just had to decide whether they were going to actually play the game. Now, as the Islamic story goes, Muhammad at this time was hesitant to make big moves without God's permission. And at this point, he wasn't given explicit permission to fight the Meccans, let alone go on the offensive. However, from the Muslim perspective, and really I can see this from a neutral perspective as well, they had a very good point. The destitute Muslims had a very, very solid argument, even an ethical argument. I mean, these people did basically rob them and persecute them. And really, a war between Mecca and Medina is probably inevitable anyway. And when wars are inevitable, why wait back for your opponent to strike? Why not move first? Of course, as many Americans of my generation know, and hopefully still remember, it just doesn't take very much to talk people into a preemptive war when they have just suffered a trauma. It takes very little. And the ground was fertile right now to go after the caravans. Very fertile, like Garden of Eden fertile. So it just seemed like something that was going to happen. They were, they just needed the order. And of course, eventually the message came. This is from the Quran, Surah 22, verses 39 to 40. Permission to fight back is hereby granted to those being fought, for they have been wronged, and Allah is truly most capable of helping them prevail. They are those who have been expelled from their homes for no reason other than proclaiming, Our Lord is Allah. Had Allah not repelled the aggression of some people by means of others, Destruction would have surely claimed monasteries, churches, synagogues, and mosques in which Allah's name is often mentioned. Allah will certainly help those who stand up for him. Allah is truly all-powerful, almighty. Now, did you catch how religiously broad that is? To basically cover all the Abrahamic faiths, he's saying monasteries, churches, synagogues and mosques um this has not a whole lot to do with the episode but i just thought it was interesting to note that at this point uh, the quran seems to consider us all to be on the same team anyway when you see this message what do you see do you see a mercy from god or do you see a convenient message that was delivered to a motivated messenger like I said, 
It depends greatly on your perspective. But one thing to keep in mind here is the audience. This is clearly directed at the emigrants. Now, remember the episode on factions. The emigrants would be the Muslim faction that would take part in all these early raids. The helpers, the Medinans, even though they were Muslims, they didn't really take part in any of this until Badr in 624. Now, we'll get there soon and explain how the helpers were motivated to join their Muslim brothers. But for now, it's just that one faction. It's the emigrants, the Meccans. And really, Muhammad, if you think about it, was the head immigrant. Like it or not, this was his faction. So the order comes down, and Muhammad was clearly okay with this. Now, this was mostly because God had told him to be okay with this. But these raiding expeditions are a little strange against the backdrop of how Muhammad left Mecca. Because Muhammad paid these people all that he owed them, remember, crooked as they may have been. He risked Ali's life to do that. And here we are, less than a year later, and all of a sudden he's okay with robbing them. And violently robbing them, actually. Now, I suppose if God says so, you don't question that. But as I warned you, things get way more complicated from here on out. How this is viewed is all a matter of perspective, and for many, a matter of faith. I think a Muslim would say, hey, Muhammad settled his debts long before God authorized the use of force. That was then, this is now. And when God changes the rules of engagement, you go with it. On the other hand, a cynic would say, economic reality drives all. Follow the money. This was okay because it needed to be okay. And I should also mention that these raids are kind of unique. They may not be exactly what you have in your mind. First off, in the first raids before the Battle of Badr in 624, there were only a few helpers joining the immigrants. And we're talking very small raiding parties here. Sometimes just a few dozen. Small, small numbers. So at the beginning, it was more of a harassment campaign than a raid. Because in the early raids, the Muslims were often outnumbered, sometimes greatly so. And in these early raids, the Muslims just weren't all that competent at this for the first six or seven times. They would send out expeditions, often get intelligence uh, from Mecca about the caravans, and then they would either miss the caravans or something else would go wrong. Now, even when Muhammad personally led these expeditions, they yielded no plunder. Not that there weren't benefits. Um, the mere threat was certainly an annoyance to the Quraysh, and it made business more expensive for them. So in that way, they weakened their enemies. But sometimes the Muslims would miss the Quraysh, but find another caravan and raid it. And instead of getting money, they would basically use the situation to extort a peace treaty to create allies. So one by one, the Muslims started forging alliances or non-aggression pacts with these other local Bedouin tribes around the area. And that is something that would be quite useful for a band of raiders continually crossing the desert. 
there was no actual fighting until a raid in January 624, which is a few months before Bonner. Which, of course, like I said, we'll get to that. Now, this was the raid on Nakla. That's N-A-K-H-L-A. With a in the, I didn't even do it well. In the middle. Now, this, the battle, the raid on Nakla, not a battle, it would be consequential for two major reasons. One, it was successful. That was new. Um, at least uh, from a uh, booty standpoint. The Muslims had been at this for a year without any plunder to show for it. And now, after this, they had it. And two, the Muslims had just committed a major Arab taboo by killing people during a holy month. Now, this is something that seriously hindered warfare in Arabia, so it's certainly worth mentioning. I mean, seriously, a third of the year was holy. And if you're trying to sustain what was basically a guerrilla campaign against a powerful enemy, it seems odd to let these things get in the way, these sensibilities, because these are Arab sensibilities. This, this was an Arab custom. This wasn't something from God. This was something celebrated and honored by pagans. But still, reportedly, Muhammad was angry at the timing of this raid because it was the end of the month and his companions had struck just a few days, maybe even it was a day, just a bit too early. Now, their justification for jumping the gun here, it was understandable because at the time, it was really hard to kill people and be a bias Arab at the same time. If they had struck then, it would still be in the holy month. But if they waited until the month was over, they would be in sacred territory when you can't touch them, regardless of when it is. Keep in mind, it's a moving target. So this target's moving into this sort of no-kill zone, um, at which point the opportunity is lost. And so they made an executive decision, this group. And in the end, they seized the opportunity showing initiative that, frankly, would make a modern commander extremely proud. And in the end, God backed up their decision with this Quranic revelation. This is Surah 2, verse 217. This is God's opinion of the matter. They ask you, O prophet, about fighting in the sacred months. Say, Fighting during these months is a great sin, but hindering others from the path of Allah, rejecting him, and expelling the worshippers from the sacred mosque is a greater sin in the sight of Allah. For persecution is far worse than killing, and they will not stop fighting you until they turn you away from your faith, if they can. And whoever among you renounces their own faith and dies a disbeliever, their deeds will become void in this life and in the hereafter. It is they who will be the residents of the fire, and they will be there forever. So here, God is throwing it down, Old Testament style. He's taking the gloves off. It's a complete change in the rules of engagement. And this was hugely, hugely important. In a way, it was actually like the Muslim version of when the Christians and Paul when they decided that Christians need not be circumcised. Obviously, it's not exactly the same. I'm making a comparison here. What I mean is, in this, they were moving away from a particular 
ethnic sensibility, in this case the Arabs, and towards something more universal. Now, that wasn't apparent at the time, but when you think about it, it's a bit surprising Muhammad was even keeping these customs in the first place. He had already severed his ties to the old gods and to his old clan. These were both huge Arab taboos. He was even raiding his fellow tribesmen. So it was the start of something very, very big in that respect. But it also laid the ground for the decade to come. Now remember, spoiler alert here, skip forward 30 seconds if you don't want to hear it. But Muhammad will eventually march an army on the holy city of, Mede of, uh, of Mecca. Now, you can't do that, even if it becomes a bloodless siege and surrender, unless the Meccans believe that you will actually use force, regardless of how holy the ground might be. And this is where that threat actually became real. Now, just to clarify here, don't think of the raid of Nakhla as some kind of gigantic battle. It was more of a bank robbery than a great raid, really. You want to hear the numbers on each side. <laughs> it's actually almost comical when you look at these numbers. Now, the Quraysh, they had four fighters. Four. One, two, three, four. One killed, two captured. The Muslims had 12 fighters and six camels. They had two men captured a bit after the battle, but they somehow became separate from the others. It was a whole thing, but the prisoners would later be exchanged, so no casualties, actually. So the total here is 16 combatants, which is not something that usually makes a history book. But these early skirmishes, these are just ridiculously small numbers. Now, that would change a bit. The next battle, the <laughs> again... Nakla was not a battle. It's more of a, a skirmish or a bank robbery or a raid, whatever you want to call it. But the Battle of ba Badr, um, which also is not always called a battle, it usually is, but I understand why some don't do it. These numbers are still small, but they will be way bigger than Nakla. Um, we'll be talking about, say, 300 Muslims at most. And the swelled numbers are because the whole community would start to participate. More on why that is when we get to the discussion of Badr in a little bit. Well, not in this episode, in future ones. But regardless of these numbers, this was still very good news for Muslims. They were increasingly gaining in confidence and taking the battle to the Meccans. But at the same time, before I wrap this up, I should probably make note of how this all looked to Medina's other factions. You know, we often talk about how all this looks to the Muslims, and because it is the Islamic story, but there are onlookers and people who are effective who are going to see this very differently. So I'll end this episode with a quick wrap-up of the political situation in this time period. Back in Medina, for the Muslims' new allies, this was not good news. In fact, it could be seen as a breach of the alliance. Not a formal breach, so to speak, but it was more of a realization of their worst fears of what could happen when Muhammad came to Medina. See, that's the problem with being an ally. Yes, people will come to your aid if you need help, 
and you're happy to return the favor. But what if your ally is picking a fight with someone with whom you have no quarrel? Are you still obligated to help? Now, there are some modern alliances that have seen this coming, and they spell this out plainly. If you attack someone, we have no obligation to help you, even if they come back at you and march on your capital. NATO, for example, is like this, the North Atlantic Treaty Organizations. If one of the far-flung allies, say, Estonia, you know, if Estonia fires a bunch of missiles into Moscow and Moscow shoots back, the other NATO members are not obligated to enter the war on Estonia's side. Even if, if Russian tanks roll into Estonia, um, again, you could actually make an argument that they had that coming. Now, if Russia were the aggressor and they rolled their tanks into Estonia, that's a whole other matter. matter. But that safeguard, it's there for a reason, to keep this a strictly defensive kind of alliance. And in many ways, this is learning the lessons of 1914. You just don't want another World War I situations where a bunch of countries go to war and they really don't even have any idea why. Now, I think even China has told North Korea that if they attack any of their neighbors, they're on their own. And that's smart. You know, especially if they go and roll an army into South Korea. You know, China does not want to be tied to someone who is going around starting wars. China's looking out for their interests, safeguarding against abuse from their ally. But the non-Muslims of Medina, they had no such protection. They didn't have that kind of foresight to put that into a treaty. And really, they only had themselves to blame. Because from their perspective, this was almost instantly looking like a poorly thought out alliance. Because if you look at the constitution of Medina, you can really see this coming a million miles away. The non-Muslims would be drawn into the Muslim-Meccan conflict, almost surely. Um, and, and still they agreed to it. It wasn't a secret. Um, here are a few choice snippets from the uh, the Constitution of Medina to tell you what I, I'm talking about. One says, And the believers as a body shall take blood vengeance in the way of God. Okay. And another, If anyone fights against the people of this code, there, meaning the Jews and the Muslims, their mutual help shall come into operation. And there's another one that says, the Quraysh shall be given no protection, nor shall they who help them. Remember that last one. The Quraysh shall be given no protection, nor shall they who help them. That has a very with us or against us quality to it. The Muslims and the Jews are clearly linked militarily here. And if there is any question about what something means, well, the document also says Muhammad will tell them what it means. So in many ways, the, the, the Jews of Medina either were not thinking very clearly or they were just hoping for something different. Because the thing is, the people of Medina, they were in this now, even if they didn't want to be. The Muslims had declared war on the Meccans. Now, from the perspective of the Jewish clans, they were picking a needless fight with the Quraysh. Why should they care if these people persecuted all these newly arrived immigrants? And you can see that perspective. If the Muslims left the Meccans alone, 
it's pretty unlikely any Quraysh-led armies would be coming to Medina. So why is Muhammad poking the bear? You know, that, that's kind of what they would be wondering in their minds and thinking, what is he doing? He's putting our entire city in danger, especially if the rest of Arabia ends up allying with the Quraysh, which at that time has to seem like a pretty likely thing. But regardless of why Muhammad was doing it, he was doing it. And the Jews wouldn't be completely drawn into this for a few years. There was still time. Because the first battle, the Battle of Badr, it would be an all-Muslim affair. But at the same time, I want you to think of the real politique of this situation here. And to look past the usual histories, which are usually written entirely from the Muslim perspective, because they won. <laughs> so in some ways, I, I just want to shed some light on understanding the other people of Medina from time to time, the Jews in particular. And then when the events of the next few years transpire, and all these things happen with the Jews and the Muslims, and you think about who was abusing whom, and what was an atrocity and what was justice, kind of factor in this moment and think about this situation. And just kind of realize that that moment, um, the Battle of the Trench in particular to come, that wasn't something that just happened out of the blue. The divide was a long time coming, and it wasn't just religious. And this time, right now, this point in history, this is when it started. All right, um, that's it for the Raiders episode. Next time we'll ride to Badr, and this is the time of action. There are plenty of battles to come. And this will be the first genuine military action, complete with duels and martyrs and heroes and notable casualties. So, yeah, it's a new phase in Islamic history, a military phase, starting at Badr. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.